Turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. I believe one of the primary responsibilities that I have as a pastor in preaching is to encourage and inspire the people of God. By preaching, I have a responsibility to encourage and inspire the people of God. Now, we know that there's a whole lot more uh, that uh, takes place from this pulpit uh, than just encouraging and inspiring. Uh, We have to reprove, we have to rebuke, we have to instruct in doctrine, we have to evangelize, and, and all these different components that go into preaching as a pastor from the pulpit. But that does not negate nor does it minimize the need to encourage and inspire God's people. We live in a society today that if we were to look around for very long, we would be left only with discouragement. There is lots of reasons. There are lots of reasons if we look around today to be discouraged. But we know that because of what God has done on our behalf in giving Jesus Christ to die for us, just as we sang earlier, we have no reason for discouragement, but only to be encouraged by what it is that we look ahead towards in Christ Jesus, that one day we have been sealed and promised eternity. And so by that then, as we looked and consider uh, what we actually have, what we have to focus on, what we have to dwell on, where our mind should be directed, it is not towards those things that discourage, but instead those things that encourage. That we would be exhorted today, that we would be edified today, built up and, and, and exhorted and encouraged that we together might be able to have our thoughts set on those things above like we talked about last week. I think one difficulty that we run into in discouragement is that when we come into the church house, we find ourselves oftentimes encumbered by the things that are outward to discourage us. And so we come into the church house not with our hearts set on fellowshipping with and communing with and worshiping God, as much as it is that we come in with our minds set in, in just different places, whether that's that we're just busy and our, our minds are, are, are off somewhere and thinking about what's ahead for us this week, or our minds just can't escape the realities that we have in our lives and those things that burden us, whatever that might be, but we come for a purpose that's, uh, that's different or, or off of what we actually are desiring to do, and fellowshipping and communing with the Lord. And when you do that, you leave yourself open to discouragement even in the service of the Lord. How many of you have entered into the house of the Lord and left discouraged by the things that happened there? Now sometimes we, we must admit we are, are, are fallen by nature or our, our flesh loves sin and, and by that sometimes we, we get off course and there can be reasons to be discouraged I suppose sometimes about what we see in a service when people go off track. But I want you to know that if your heart has come with a single purpose to fellowship with and to magnify and exalt and worship God, you close off that reason of discouragement. Your heart becomes focused on the Lord and those things that would discourage you, they can't hold a candle to what your heart is focused on. And so what takes place then is that you're called outward, you're called upward, away from this world, away from the discouragement of life, and away from even the things that can discourage you here. That instead your mind might be set on the things of God. 
That's why it's so important. <laughs> that we, that, that I as a pastor, seek that we might be encouraged and inspired from the teachings of Scripture. I hope today that as we look here in the book of Colossians that we'll, we'll be able to do that here if only for a little while this morning. So read with me from the book of Colossians. We'll start um, here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I want to read the first three or four verses and skip down uh, to verse 12. Uh, so we'll read the first three or four verses here and then skip down to verse 12. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. And he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We, we talked about that last week some. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Let's skip down now to verse 12. Paul continues and he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing with grace in your hearts, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We'll stop there at verse 17 of Colossians chapter 3. Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he has written so far in this book, in this letter, and he's trying to direct them in some things of doctrine and some teachings of the Lord, some right teachings of the Lord. And his purpose in doing so, he states, is that they might not be pulled aside by the persuasive teachings of men. He's trying to root them and ground them in the truth. Then we come here to chapter 3, and he says, If you then, he says, seeing that we would be rooted and grounded in the truth, he says, consider that if you have been risen with Christ, if you've been saved, we know that you have been resurrected. You've been made alive. You've been made new in Christ Jesus. It's what promised us the resurrection of this body from the dead when Christ would come back, that we might be able to dwell with Him, that we would ascend up with Him, that we would receive a spiritual body. I wish I understood the ins and outs of that. I don't. All I know is that I believe what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says about it. And I'm confident one day it's going to come about. But meanwhile, while we may not understand the inner workings of it, Paul reasons that seeing that we be risen with Christ, that we should seek those things which are above. That our minds would be set on those things that are eternal. Not on the things that are here temporary on the earth. He says that our minds should be with Jesus where Jesus is, on the right hand of God. We talked last week about where is your heart, the location of your heart, that our heart would be where our treasures are, and that our treasures would be laid up for us in heaven. Paul now is taking that to even a greater degree when he's saying that our lives should be with Jesus, our minds should be with Jesus. He says, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. If you have a relationship with Jesus, where you walk closely with Him, it is as though your life is with Jesus. 
Well, sure, we, we know that we live and we dwell here, but the meaning of your life, the fabric of your life, the fiber of your life is found in Jesus. It's found in heaven. It is found on the right hand of God. He says, seeing then that this would be the case in verse 4, he says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. That there would be this, uh, this coming together, this joining together, that when Christ returns, we will see manifest for us the full reality of redemption. I want you to know right now, if you've been saved by God's grace, you are as much saved as you'll ever be. You have been uh, predestined, Scripture tells us, if you've been saved by God's grace. It's as though God wrote on you as a, you write on a letter, destination, heaven. If you've been saved by God's grace, your address is heaven. But I want you to know that seeing that be the case then, while we have been redeemed by God's grace, our redemption is, is in a way only so far in part. Why? Because we've not yet been redeemed from the curse of this body. We still wage this war with the flesh where this outward man has this tendency to, to, to be persuaded in different directions by the lust of the eyes, by the lust of the flesh, by the pride of life. All those things that, that we find confounded together that we've inherited in a sin nature here in this flesh. But one day, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be redeemed not only as God has set apart our hearts and how He has saved us and that the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, but He's going to redeem us from this body as well. This body is not going to go to heaven with God. I will receive a spiritual body. Again, I wish I could understand all the inner workings of how that's going to happen. But I want you to know on the day that Jesus comes back, we're going to know all we need to know about it. <laughs> that's going to be a cool day, isn't it? It's hard not to just let your mind go off and say, I wonder what that's going to be like. I've often found myself hoping maybe I'll just be driving past the cemetery just to see all those saints of God burst forth. Maybe I will be. I don't know. But the point being is that if your life is hid with Jesus, we know that the best for us is, is yet to come. And I don't say that as some you know, soft, softer or, or you know, just trying to tickle your ears. Because the best that's yet to come isn't in this physical life. It's in a life that is laid up for us in Jesus. All that might be in front of you in the, this physical life while you're here on earth, it might just be hard times and tragedies. I don't know. But I know that if you've been saved by God's grace, what awaits you in eternity is joy and gladness forever. And so when I say the best is yet to come, I'm not talking about here in this life. I'm talking about in the life that is to come in Christ Jesus. So as we think about where our heart was or where our heart is, we looked at last week, and now we start thinking about how our heart should be set on those things that are above, how our life is with Christ. Paul talks about the things that we should not do. He talks about the things that are negative. That's what he begins in verse 5. I know we skipped over verse 5 through 11, but I just want to very quickly tell you about what, what Paul talks about. He tells it there in verse 5 to mortify, therefore your members which are upon the earth. He's saying to put to death, the deeds of the flesh. That is some very strong language that Paul uses to tell us about how it is that we should purge and remove from ourselves those things that cause us to sin, those things that are our iniquity, those things that would separate us from God that we would engage in. And that's the, he tells that in the, the negative context. I encourage you to go and study verse 5 through 11 on your own. But as he looks at that in the negative, those things that we should not do, he gets to verse 12 and he talks about it in the positive. Those things that we should do. And that's what I want us to look at today. He says to put on, therefore. 
He, the, the idea, the expression in the original language has and carries with it the literal idea of getting dressed. He says, dress yourself as the elect of God. Dress yourselves as redeemed people. How should saints of God dress? Not your physical attire. I hope that it's modest and, and, and holy and it's just a frame for your face. That's how you should dress. In fact, let me tell you this, young people. If how you dress is anything else but a frame for your face, it is sensual and it's wrong. I should have got more amens than those two. But Paul's here talking about spiritually how we dress. He says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And he says, bowels of mercy. He's talking about compassion. He says to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, meekness, and long-suffering. He's told us just here in this one verse, these attributes, these four or five characteristics that should accompany what it is to be a child of God. That we are to be compassionate and kind and humble and patient with one another. Sometimes I have crossed off all four of those for nine or ten in the morning where I've fallen short. I don't think I'm the only one. But what Paul is doing when we think about how our lives should be hid with Christ, he's expressing them that if our lives are indeed hid with Christ, behold, what will accompany that will be apparent in the deeds of the flesh. It's easy to be compassionate when your mind and your heart is set on things of the Lord. Compassion then becomes a byproduct, becomes an, an outward display of what your mind and your heart are set on all the time. Being humble. How is it that a man can be prideful when his mind is set only on the things that God has done? Listen to me. When I consider the things of life that I have seen, that I have been able to, to somehow accomplish in life, it is only that God has worked those things out in my life. It is not of any good that I have, I have done, but it is all fully of the Lord. And you say, well, Derek, that's false humility. But if we see as we get down into the very last verse that we read today in verse 17, where he says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. My friends, if your mind, if your heart is set on things of the Lord, and the things that you do in this life are done in the name of the Lord Jesus, whether you are a student and you are doing your homework in the name of the Lord Jesus, or you're going to your job and you're doing your work as, as you would as an employee, or whatever it is you do for a living in the name of the Lord Jesus. Behold, all those things that you would do, they are done in service to the Lord. So they are not things that you do that you would be lifted up or boasted of, but instead that others might see God through you. And it's accompanied by a humble spirit. I love that. It's going to sound weird, and I hope I can express this as I mean to. I love being around humble people. And I strongly dislike being around prideful people. It is not hard to tell the difference. A lot of times what I find in my own life is the things that, the, the things that I identify in, in people that I believe to be prideful and the things that I don't like being around, when I start doing an inventory in my life and I see those things, it makes me have to pause and, and purge those from my life. 
Because what we recognize so often is that the pridefulness that we find ourselves dealing with and confronted with, it isn't that great big display where we say, look what I've done. But instead it's in those little things, those little day-to-day things which we do that are rooted only in the desire for ourselves and not in the desire for the glory of the Lord. And you say, well, Derek, what are you talking about? I want you to think about Judas. We're just going to go right to the most extreme example. Judas was a follower of Jesus, at least in terms of what he displayed. We know certainly that his heart was far from Jesus. But he was a treasurer. He was a treasurer of the group. He he handled the money. And what we find in Judas is that he took upon himself how it was that he could make gain. He was looking about what he could do for himself by being linked to Jesus. It was about Judas and not about Jesus. And you might say, well, Derek, that's a very extreme example, and it is. But I think what we do from time to time is that we masquerade. We put up a defense and we say, well, we are saved people. We're believers. And so we follow Jesus. How could we ever be prideful? Yet meanwhile, what we see off over here where no one is looking, where no one's paying attention, and we make it about ourselves. And it doesn't take long talking to somebody to be able to identify those things. You hear a lot of me and me and I. Not a lot of expression of kindness or compassion or patience. Those other attributes that we see Paul talking about here. A prideful heart is a heart that is not able to show the compassion that Paul speaks about. It's not able to show the kindness that Paul talks about or able to be patient like Paul talks about. I had a Sunday school teacher. Let me tell you this real quick. One time he he taught a long, long series on pride. And when we started off that that study, my, my mind was just simply, yeah, I know pride's bad. I shouldn't be a prideful person. person. Why, why are you teaching this to me? I get it. We're good. But he meticulously went through all of these different expressions of pride. And the one that finally got my mind to think about what God actually sees as our pridefulness was when my Sunday school teacher started talking about somebody driving on the road and about they think that their time is more valuable than somebody else's. And so suddenly they're passing people like crazy and going off on the shoulder to go around people and cutting people off and all these other kinds of things. And man, that was like a pinprick through my heart. (laughs) I get a little impatient on the road sometimes. (laughs) Well, when I started thinking about why I get impatient, it's because I think that my time is more valuable than somebody else's. Well, if this guy would get out of my way, I'd be able to get where I'm going a little faster. Oh, so it's about you. <laughs> I began to see pride in ways that I'd never before seen. And it was very convicting. So I want to encourage you. I'm going to get to the encouraging part in a minute, I promise. <laughs> but I want to encourage you today to seek out for your own life how it is that you measure up the things that Paul's talking about. Your compassion, your kindness, your humility, your patience with one another. I think what you'll find is that they're all linked together. Paul keeps going. He says, forbearing one another, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. He says, if any man be a quarrel against any, if, if anyone have a quarrel against someone, even as Christ has forgiven you, so also should you forgive them. 
One of my favorite hallmarks, I've heard about Christianity. I heard it in a song my was singing. It was talking about Christians. And he said, it just seems like they can't wait to forgive each other. We should be a forgiving people. And you say, well, why is it that we should be forgiving? Because Christ has forgiven us more than we'll ever be able to forgive anybody else. Whatever has been wronged against you, whatever quarrel someone has against you or quarrel you have against them, whatever disagreements you have in your life, Jesus Christ has forgiven you a hundredfold compared to the things that you have faced in your life that you would deliver forgiveness for. So I ask you today, are you forgiving? I need to hurry. He says, and above all these things, put on love, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. How will we ever dwell together in unity if we as a people are not dressed in love? He says, and let, listen to verse 15. Well, I want to talk more about verse 15 and verse 16. He says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The peace of God should govern our lives. It should govern the church. When we consider how it is that we should act, consider how it is that we should interact with one another, consider the things that we should do as a church, the peace of God should rule over them. It should govern them. And Paul, let me back up. The people that Paul is writing to here in Colossae, they understood what Paul was talking about. Because the language that Paul was using was one of a referee or an umpire in in a game, in a sport. Think about a referee or an umpire in a baseball game or basketball game or football game. They are there to govern that game, that rules are followed, that things are done the right way. And if somebody does something wrong, they'll call a foul, they'll, they'll call a, a, a penalty, they'll do those things that are identifying that something has gone amiss. And Paul says that government, that umpire, that referee for our lives should be the peace of God. Sister Brianna testified this morning about being content. When we think about contentment, contentment is only going to be fostered not because suddenly we get along with everybody, because you're going to have different ideas than I do and different opinions than I do, but it's going to be found when it is that we let the peace of God rule in our lives. And if the peace of God rules in our lives individually, and we allow the peace of God to rule in the church, what happens is any division amongst us, any, any you know, bitterness that we'd have towards one another, it can't have hold. Why? Because the rule of the peace of God is found in our interactions together and it governs us that together we might be bound together in that perfect bond of love. You see, all these things that Paul's talking about, they're, they're relating to one another and they're intertwined and they're leading to what Paul's going to talk about here in verse 16 and what I want to focus on here today. And you say, Derek, you've been preaching for 20 minutes and you're just getting to the point. I am. Verse 16, he says, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. You ever bitten into something that's just rich? You bite into a brownie and it's just rich with chocolate. And whenever you do that, it doesn't matter what you try to do or what you try to say about it. Even if you try not to say it, you bite into it and the immediate reaction you have is, 
mm, that's rich. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been into something like that and not had that reaction. Why? Because it is flavored with, it has been, been so made with, it, it embodies the rich flavors that you are experiencing. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When I'm around someone, when you're around me, you should be able to identify that the words of Christ are rich in me. That they're rich in you. That they're rich in us as a people. If we as a people find ourselves together to be loving, to, to be compassionate and kind and, and humble and long-suffering and patient with one another and forgiving one another, loving one another, allowing the peace of God to rule in our hearts, what happens is we create an environment where the Word of Christ, where the Scriptures, where who Jesus is, we create an environment where all of that can be embodied and can be instructed and received correctly and applied rightly. We create an environment where God can be praised and worshipped and the scriptures can be magnified and taken in by us that we can learn and grow from them. Meanwhile, though, if we are prideful, Brother Gary talked about it last week, we, we do that pitchfork like he was talking about where we flip the message behind us, that can't apply to me. Or if we find ourselves to be impatient, we we can't possibly be able to create an environment where the scriptures can have focus, where the words of Christ can be made of great effect. Why? Because we find ourselves so busy with everything else, we don't have time for it. All the things that Paul's talking about, he leads up to this, that the words of Christ can dwell in you richly. Then he gets to what I want to focus on. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns in spiritual songs, singing with grace or singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Why is it so important that the Christian live according to the righteousness of Christ that is in them? It's because when we find that we are able to live as Christ desires, that we walk after Christ and strive that our minds and our hearts will be with Him, that our minds and our hearts will be thinking and focused on the things that are above, when we come together, we begin to exhort and encourage and admonish one another with songs, with hymns, with psalms. We find ourselves being able to worship the Lord and exalt the name of God and in doing so, that we are encouraged and admonished. I want you to think about the times where you've been in service where we've just had a song service that's just elevated your heart to such a way that you feel like you could just walk outside and just walk on air. You ever had that? I'm not talking from a full service. I'm just talking about from a few songs that have been sung. Where it's as though the people of God have joined together to worship God and encourage one another by singing and by praise and by worship. And the result of that, the consequence of that, is that our spirits are elevated that they can be focused on the things that are above. You said I talked about all this coming together. So think about how we sing. Think about what we sing and why we sing. Sometimes I think, if you're like me, especially when I was young, I, I would go through a song service just kind of haphazardly. I was kind of waiting for the songs to get done. I wanted to, to kind of move on with the service. I wasn't in it to do expression. 
As I've gotten older and I've matured, and I've, I've heard the word so often now growing up in church, and I, I know the hymns, and most of the time I don't even need to open the book. But what I find myself doing when I open the book is I get to read the words and let the words wash over me. Before I even begin to sing them, my heart's responding to the things that are written. And then I engage in the melody that's being made by my brothers and my sisters. And together, my brothers and my sisters are taking those words that have washed over me and they're carrying them up with my heart and with my spirit, upward and directed to the Lord. Our melody comes together and it's as though when one voice joins another and it joins another and it joins another, we're just pushing our hearts and our minds and our spirits higher and higher. Isn't that awesome how we get to worship God together? And what's wonderful about that is suddenly when we do that, it's not about how it sounds. And it's not about if the songs meet our preferences. But instead, it's about the direction of our hearts and glorifying and praising the Lord. Whether we have a piano player, whether we don't have a piano player as we did this morning, whether it is that I'm having to lead singing <laughs> or somebody that's much more skilled at leading singing like Brother Brett or Brother Nick or Brother Corey, one of the brothers or sisters. It is our hearts are made to join together to magnify the Lord. The, I'll call it the companion letter. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it or not, but the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians is very similar or, or kind of continues some ideas here from the book of Colossians. And Paul told this to the Ephesians, said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing to yourselves. Speaking to yourselves through psalms. And the psalmist wrote this in Psalm 95. It says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart as in the provocation and in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Unto whom I swear in my wrath, they should not enter into my rest. It's almost was writing and was speaking. We know that verse verse very well, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The psalmist elaborated on that. That we would sing to the Lord for His greatness and for His might. Today I seek to encourage you and to exhort you and admonish you that when we consider the things of the Lord and how it is that we might react with Him, that we might interact with Him, that our focus is on the Lord, not that we might live better. Our focus is on the Lord that we might is not on the Lord that we might somehow just become a better person, but our focus is drawn to the Lord because of who He is. 
Because of his nature. Because of what he has done. Our minds are laid up with Jesus. Because we know him and we've seen the great work that he's accomplished for us. And we know the things that he has done and that he is doing. And so our desire then to live rightly is not that we might follow some religious rules. But instead that we might magnify God in all that we do. I think sometimes religious religion gets this very bad rap because they think it's all about following a bunch of rules. Listen to me. If your Christianity is all about following a bunch of rules, you're doing it wrong. Christianity is about following Christ. And when you follow Christ, you'll follow His instructions. You'll follow His teachings. Why? Because you're following the One that has gave His life for you. But the focus, as it always is, it's all about Jesus, right? The focus is all on Him. So let our hearts be encouraged and uplifted, seeing that the things that Paul has told us to mortify, the things that he's told us to put on and and dress ourselves with spiritually, are that we might be able to magnify the Lord, the One in whom we love, the One in whom first loved us, and the One who our minds and our hearts are to be laid up with. The psalmist went on, that Psalm number 95, and he talked about, to, speaking of the Lord, to harden not your hearts. As in the day of the provocation, he was talking about when Israel was, was in the wilderness, as they were journeying from being in, in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and waiting to enter into the promised land. And for 40 years, they wandered in Egypt, or excuse me, wandered in the wilderness. Why? Because their hearts Today, my friend, I know that a lot of times as Christians, we get discouraged and our hearts get hardened. We see the weakness of the flesh and we mourn for those that we love that that aren't living according to the one in whom they profess to be saved by. And we grow weary in the things that we see and and, and the necessity of the things that, that we as a church are instructed to do about that. But the encouragement of the psalm is don't harden your hearts. But sing unto the Lord and make a joyful noise unto Him. Because when you do that, your hearts, any of that hardness is just melted. It's just melted. I can't explain it, but it's just melted. Why? Because suddenly our hearts are set on a far better country than this one. And our hearts are made to wax warm, made to grow and and, and expand in love and a desire for the Lord. Psalm number 43, it's just a a shorter psalm. It says, Judge me, O God, and lead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. The psalmist had reason to be discouraged, didn't he? He said, For thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, unto the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down on my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him who is the health of my countenance in my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Your hope is in the Lord. 
my friend today, when you are troubled and you are vexed on every side, though it might be the most difficult thing you can picture or you imagine yourself doing, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. You might say, Derek, I don't feel like singing. Listen, when you're discouraged, you're not going to. Sing anyway. If you have to sing through teeth that are gritted together, sing through teeth that are gritted together, but let the melody of your heart be carried to the Lord. Some of you would probably prefer if I sing with my teeth gritted together. It might sound better. For the purpose being that our hearts would be focused on the Lord. What is the answer to all of the trouble and all of the, the discouragement that lays around us today? The answer for it is not going to be found in a Capitol building. It's not going to be found in the self-help aisle at Barnes & Noble. But it's found in the Lord. And if you believe that, if you believe what I'm saying, if you've tasted of that joy and you've experienced that, this instruction of Scripture is that when you are discouraged, when your soul is cast down and disquieted within you, return to the hope of the Lord as the psalmist has written, may we sing with joy. My wife's not here so I can say this. I must be obnoxious to live with because I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I don't care how big that bucket is, I couldn't carry the tune. But I love to sing. I sing a lot around the house. Sometimes there are silly songs with my kids. Sometimes there are fun songs that my kids like to watch and sing. Sometimes it is that I just get a hymn stuck in my head and it's on repeats and I can't get it out. But you know, before long, that hymn that's stuck in my head, that's on repeat, I keep singing it, and I keep singing it, and I keep singing it. And before long, God takes that hymn, and He takes that song, and He takes that melody. And instead of it just being something stuck on my head, like me singing the Elmo song to Ellie, or, or me dancing and carrying on with the kids, or something along those lines. Instead, that hymn that I just stuck on repeat in my mind, it begins to carry my heart and my mind off to greater thoughts. And before long, I can't remember what I was thinking about. I can't remember what had me troubled in the first place. <laughs> That's incredible to me. <laughs> that God would allow us to forget our troubles. They don't disappear. <laughs> but God takes our thoughts and our minds and He sets them on Himself. And they're carried far away from the trouble. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? I love the Lord. I'll end with this. As I hope to encourage you today. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. I believe it's in the fourth chapter. And he was writing about the return of the Lord. You hear this, these scriptures read a lot of times when, when a loved one passes on about the coming of the Lord and, and about us being raised in, in His likeness, about in His appearing and the twinkling of an eye. 
He expands upon that, upon the coming of the Lord. I believe it's the very last verse in that chapter. He tells us to comfort one another with these words. Alternate translation of that is to encourage one another with these words. When I'm discouraged, most of the time, the last thing that I want to hear is, the Lord's coming back. (laughs) I know He's coming back, but right now He hasn't, and I've still got this going on. But Paul said to encourage and to comfort one another with this knowledge, that Christ Jesus is coming back. We groan and travail here in this body. Scripture says that all of creation has grown and travailed together. But Jesus is coming back. <laughs> There's an end to all of this groaning. There's an end to all of this discouragement. There's an end to all of this that causes us to be cast down and disquieted, as the psalmist said. And the end of that will be when we see the appearance of Christ. And for those that are saved by God, you know what we'll see with Him? As Paul wrote in the earlier verses of that chapter, we will see our lives appearing with Him. We'll live forever with Jesus. My friend, I don't know what you're going through. But I know there's reasons to discourage you. And my hope today is that you be encouraged. That what would encourage you, whether that's by song or by seeing your testimony or all these means by which the Lord can encourage the hearts of those that are His, that your mind will be set upon things that are above where your life is. Knowing for a certain that we are encouraged and comforted in knowing this, that the One who has saved us, He has not forgotten us. It's not that He's forgotten or isn't aware about the things that you are going through. But the things that you are going through are that you might be seen more like Him as you go through that valley and as you go through that trial. And as you come out the other side that you will continue to be singing the song of victory, praising and glorifying the Lord that was with you every step of the way. And is going to remain with you until He comes back to get us. I love the Lord. I thank you for listening to me.